Hello and welcome to Best of Shows, Entertainment Weekly's weekly look at the best of television and the rest of television. I'm Darren Franich, a TV critic at Entertainment Weekly, and I'm joined coast to coast by my fellow critic and Pamela Adlon fan, Kristen Baldwin. Kristen, how's it going today? I am a huge Pamela Adlon fan. Not only, Same. Not only for better things, but because she voiced voices or voiced one of my favorite characters of all time, Bobby Hill. From King that of the is Hill. still that is still one of the best pieces of like recent TV lore because I remember kind of watching Pamela Adlon, you know, when she was such a big part of Louie, and suddenly she's it's like she was everywhere, and it was like, oh, and also she was the voice of Bobby. How is that I possible? Mean... <laughs> Uh, we'll be talking all about better things on, on this episode. We'll also be discussing uh, Leaving Neverland, the collapse of the Marvel Netflix deal. Uh, and then later on, you'll be hearing Kristen's interview with Melissa Fumero of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. But Kristen, now let's talk better things. Yes. This is, this is maybe going to be the best show that we've talked about so far on Best of Shows. Perhaps it is the best of shows. Is Ooh, it? It might be. Tie in the title. Uh, this is part of our segment, What's New?, where we talk about new and returning TV shows and better things returns for its third season on fx on february 28th this show is almost indescribable and fortunately this season it was not my job to describe it it was your job and you can all go read <laughs> Kristen's review of the new season of better things on ew.com broad strokes this is the show that pamela adlon has uh directed every episode of this season it's very much inspired by her own autobiography uh it is about a character named sam fox who is a a, I don't want to say struggling actress, just no. very much a jobbing actress um, raising three daughters on her own in Los Angeles. And stuff happens to her. Is there a, a better, more accurate description of the show than stuff happening to her? I don't think so, Darren, because literally one of the summaries uh, of season three, one of the summaries for the episode, uh, maybe the first one, is Sam copes with stuff. And <laughs> I mean, that's what happens. It's about, you know, the tiny things that you have to go through every day to just get through the day, whether it's like trying to find a shirt that fits you when you're trying to get out the door or, uh, you know, dealing with getting your kid to do her homework or uh, just waiting in line for the bathroom at work. You know, it's all these things, but it's so beautifully rendered and written. And it's just it's it's hard to call it a comedy because so much of it is so moving and sweet, but it's really just I, it is very funny, but it's also just very moving and very real. It's hard to it's hard to do it justice, and it makes me sad because I want everyone to watch this show. Uh, you know, critics from the beginning have been praising how great it is, but it is really hard to describe because it's, you know, like Seinfeld, it's a show about nothing, but it really is. There's such a specificity to the details on this show. Um, you know, this season, uh, Sam is starring in a big budget blockbuster movie. And, you know, you kind of mentioned waiting in line for the bathroom at work. <laughs> you know, on, on this show, she's waiting in line on location in the desert filming a big budget zombie looking movie. And it's interesting because it doesn't take much to tease out some resonance here because Pamela Adlon was literally just starring in the Transformers spinoff Bumblebee. And, you know, not that she's making it about that, but it's right. clear to me that she's lived that life. Um, but in the way that I think really great drama and comedy does, the specificity is also what makes it universal. Um, you know, the, the three actresses who play Sam's daughters, um, you know, each of them are such very specific and defined characters. And it doesn't feel like they're characters that anyone has said, how do we make them as broad and mainstream as possible? But somehow as a result, you know, each of their interactions with their mom just feels really 
wonderful and specific and universal. And, you know, even in the first episode, as she's dropping off her oldest daughter at college, and she's ultimately helping one of her other daughters with her homework. I don't know, there's just such a warmth to it that feels very unforced. And I think I think unforced warmth is maybe one of the hardest things it a TV really show is. can create. And even just that moment where she's helping Frankie, uh, her daughter do her homework it's just got this great moment because she you know sam comes home from a long flight she had this horrendous flight and it was this total ordeal and she gets home and her child's frankie's on her phone and uh she hasn't even started her homework which is she has to read the whole first act of a raisin in the sun and you know Sam is like, I can't, what am I supposed to do? I can't force you to read this. And she says to her, uh, you know, you are fighting a mass generational heroin addiction, death of focus, self-soothing. And she's talking about the iPhone. And she just like vents and she gets it out. And then she's like, you know what? Fine. We'll just alternate. I'll read, I'll read a paragraph. You read a paragraph. And like, that is parenthood. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. the, the, and it becomes this very beautiful moment. And, uh, it's just a really, um, everything about it feels very real and lived in. And, um, and like you said, specific, and that's, there's some, also there's some, I don't, I won't spoil it, but there is some amazing casting this season. A oh, couple some surprise of the guest stars, guest stars wow. that are just like, I'm going to let you all, find out because you will you know you'll drop your soda as i almost did um it's just really it's a great show about being a parent being an actress being a daughter um and i really hope that uh people who haven't yet checked it out will because it's a great binge too you know 10 13 episodes half hour episodes it's easy to get through yeah. And even, you know, this season, um, I've only seen the first three episodes and there's already such a breadth of stuff happening. It's both a great binge. And also, if you haven't watched yet, just pick a random episode yes. and you can kind of dive in. Um, the third episode of the season is like a dinner party episode. And the way that it kind of moves and flows, it, it's, it's so organic and almost feels a little bit like a Robert Altman movie. Mm-hmm. And you, you almost kind of don't get what the story of it is until the end but you're just really enthralled by your hanging out with these characters and suddenly more people start showing up very unexpectedly um and it's such a great showcase for the ensemble cast um i i sort of find that the way that adlon has continually built up the supporting characters around her is very interesting um i i would like to ask Kristen, you know maybe one of the elephant in the rooms with season three and i don't even know if it's in the room it's actually an elephant out of the room and it's almost not worth talking about except insofar as it maybe informs what's new this season, is that, um, you know, Pamela Adlon had worked on this show with her collaborator, Louis C.K. He was very involved in the first two seasons. He's not involved at all after a a, a wide assortment of, uh, you know, of allegations and admitted and you know admitted problematic behavior on his part um and to me i I, it's hard for me to say there's any major change this season it still feels really fantastic to me and i guess if anything you know i i was a fan of the louis show which is something i struggle with internally all the time now Mm -hmm. and i guess the one difference i would say is that show was very to me focused on like an individual person and his kind of mind and you know that focus and there's just a feeling this season of that kind of 
fascination with other people there's yeah. a great scene in episode two where sam who's on location just goes and talks to a guy who owns a house there and that scene is just really great <laughs> and I, I don't know just just th that sense of discovery is something i find really fascinating have you watched kind of deeper into season three i think i've watched the whole season now it's like i burned through it because it was so good but i will say that like yeah you really don't notice a difference uh at all with the absence of uh louis ck because as you point pointed out like this has really been a Pamela Adlon project from the beginning in terms of yeah. she writes, she stars, she directs every episode and you know she collaborated with him and he was a part of it but clearly this is her vision and it does not suffer for his exit. I want to point out you know you mentioned the dinner party episode. One of the things I love about this show and it's just another little detail is Sam is always cooking. You know she's always <laughs> In the kitchen, you know, not like in a 50s housewife way. She likes to cook. But, you know, it, it really under underscores her role, which she has both that she loves and she hates as a caretaker. You know, she's she's always feeding her kids. She's feeding her friends. She's taking care of her mother who has dementia. Uh, she's dealing with her sibling. She has a brother played by Kevin Pollack, who's great. So good. Um, other other actors in, in the ensemble, uh, Diedrich Baker. Uh, who plays her friend Rich. Oh, he's, uh, he's so, so good. fun. You know, this is really a great ensemble. But I just love the sort of themes that come up uh, and the way that in terms of her taking care of everyone, even with the film uh, subplot this season, you know, she's on this big bu budget film and there's a lot of problems with safety concerns because, you know, they're just not... The, the people making the film are not taking it seriously. And Sam, you know, because, and this really resonates as a mom and as, as, as a woman in general, Sam feels like, well, once again, it's up to the grown woman to take care of this, you know, because <laughs> because she she knows that these people who are at her job, which it is, need to be taken care of. So I love that uh, this is just sort of constant theme running through her life. And also her oldest daughter, Max, is growing up and she's trying to let her go, but also, you know, real concerned about her choices. <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah, there's just so much about this that is a it's it's a show that will. Uh, just make you feel good, not in a, in a sort of, you know, treacly way, but in a, you know, I can relate and I, I feel seen and heard as a human on this earth way. <laughs> yeah, the, the, just something in her toughness as a caretaker and the way that um, in a very nonchalant fashion, the show convinces you that Sam is constantly dealing with like 10 problems at once. Yeah. Um, and even, you know, you mentioned Kevin Pollack, who's so great as her brother. There's a scene in episode three where he kind of comes in and is sort of like, you know, we have to do something about our mom. And you can tell that he's really kind of like, okay, like I'm taking the reins on this. It's time for me, you know, a person <laughs> to sort of, and, and her reaction is just sort of like, you know, like I'm taking care of her and also everyone else all of the time right like, it's such an interesting um just perspective shift and yeah i you know it, just to echo everything that you said the way that the show captures all of these things in a in a way that it very rarely feels like it is like telling a complete stamped upon story it's yeah. just such a wonderful character study and as we get deeper and deeper and so many of the characters seem more and more worth study uh, it's just really remarkable and yeah i, I hope that more people uh, discover the show when it uh, returns to fx and it returns on february 28th at 10 p.m i would just say also there is a moment where sam gets a new toilet 
and her joy upon getting a new toilet is so relatable to anyone who has ever owned a home. So just, I mean, this is the kind of stuff. This is the specificity <laughs> that Better Things captures. So definitely check it out when you can. Now time for the record scratch sound effect. Uh, <laughs> because our next... I'm laughing even though it's awful. Our next uh, program is... You know, something that is really hard to talk about. Uh, if there's one word to describe the experience of watching this show, which is HBO's two-part series, Leaving Neverland, the word is loss. For Wade Robson and James Safechuck, who allege in the HBO two-part film that Michael Jackson sexually molested them for years when they were boys, uh, there's lost innocence. They have lost trust in their parents, lost years of happiness as they struggled as adults to deal with the alleged abuse. But for the viewer... There is a loss of peace of mind, for lack of a better term, because no matter what you think of Robson and Safechuck's claims about the abuse, which it should be noted the singer's estate call absolutely false, it's all but impossible to leave Leaving Neverland unscathed. Uh, Darren, this four-hour film is really hard to talk about, in part because it is extremely hard to watch. Robson and Safechuck offer very graphic, detailed, and powerful accounts of the sexual abuse that they say took place. But it's also difficult because there are some really serious problems with leaving Neverland, not related to what Robson and Safechuck say themselves, but in the way that the filmmaker Dan Reed chooses to present their stories. For one thing, Reed did not interview anyone from the Jackson estate or even pay lip service to the estate's very detailed and strenuous denial. Also, both Robson and Safechuck are involved in ongoing litigation against the Jackson estate over the alleged abuse, and that's barely mentioned, uh, and they are never questioned about it. If they were, we don't see it. And it's really a shame because their story, uh, their stories, which are separate but uh, very similar, are powerful, and the lack of simple due diligence on the filmmaker's side does them and the viewer a serious disservice. Uh, I know you just finished watching this recently. How are you doing, Darren? Well, Kristen, this is a... I'm already trying to find words to say what I'm trying to think about this, and I'm very aware that in any direction I go in describing my feelings, it feels like I, I, I might be like uh, the filmmaker. I, I might be either letting down a very provocative and awful true story, um, uh -huh. or, or conversely, you know, I, 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 I may be committing a sin of being too credulous. I, 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 I don't know. I found this documentary uh, very powerful. Um, and I, I, I guess that my broadest possible description of it is I think it is very worthwhile viewing. Um, you know, in speaking to Wade and James and even in speaking to their families and um, their wives and their wives. Um, whatever you think about their allegations, I, I do think that Leaving Neverland is an incredibly sad portrait of families um, being destroyed by f like fame and celebrity yeah. and, and a fascination with that. Um, you know, the two moms are the characters who in some respects are the most fascinating people on screen because, yes. you know, you're hearing Wade and James describe these stories of their time with my 
Michael Jackson. All of that is truly haunting and awful. Um, and, and I would say, um, you know, it, it deeply affected me. Um, then you're kind of speaking to these moms who were the other adults in the room and were kind of present while a 34 year old man was openly sleeping in the same bed as their children. And, and you know, that that is a fact that is not in dispute at all. I mean, right. I, I, I'm not sure that anyone in, in any camp d disputes the fact that this was a 34 year old grown man frequently sleeping in bed with these mm -hmm. young children, which just seems wrong in a lot of ways and where there's smoke, there's fire and all of that. Um, and there's just, you know, the, the two moms, both in their own way, have some really awful and kind of damning self portraits, really. You right. know, they, they, they talk about, you know, kind of being blinded by Michael's lifestyle. The family's got very close to Michael Jackson. Um, again, that's not a thing that's in dispute. There's a, an incredible amount of archival footage. Of yes. And even these like kids a video and of um, like phone messages he left them because he would call their houses every day and and, and and faxes that he would send them and you know it's just it's all deeply disturbing. I, I really second everything that you said about feeling that there was a a missed opportunity on the part of filmmaker Dan Reed here. Mm -hmm. Strangely enough, he's actually kind of said that he did have interviews from people outside of these two families. Um, and for whatever reason, he just sort of felt like, you know, he felt like that was taking away from their story, yeah. taking away from the effect. And I guess that the simplest way that I can respond to him is to say that he's wrong. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I mean, like, if you have people who are attached to the Michael Jackson estate who are on screen saying this is all untrue, while you have these incredibly damaging and very in-depth confessions by people saying it is true, you know, that's, that's part of the story. That, to me, kind of adds to the overall quality of a theoretical film that approaches it from these two perspectives um, yeah. if you have you know if you have a screen that says we reached out to 100 people attached to the estate and they wouldn't talk to us that also tells a story exactly. and, that, and, that, and that's that's a pretty damning you know theoretical thing so i just it's it's very it's so troubling and it's something that i i have really um had to sit with but i i i don't know Kristen, is this is this a total missed opportunity? Is there still something essential about this? I mean, like, what is your kind of recommendation to people when you it's talk hard. about it's watching hard this? Because I, you know, I, I just want to say that he, the filmmaker has said that he spoke to investigators and cops who were involved in the two primary investigations uh, into Jackson and child molestation. As you may remember, he was charged in 1993 with child sex abuse. That was settled out of court. He was arrested in November 2003 for child molestation and administering an intoxicating agent. He was acquitted on at the trial in 2005. But the filmmaker says he spoke to people involved in both of those investigations, but as you said, chose not to put it in. The estate says he never contacted them or anyone you know, uh, anyone who could have offered uh, a contrary uh, opinion. That doesn't mean that Robson and Safe Chuck are lying, uh, but it just means it really does undercut the validity of this this film that wants to call it its itself a documentary. It's really hard for, you know, the simple question, should we should you watch it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, oh, God. Um, Let me I, hit you with this. Chris. Oh, oh, sorry. Sorry. You were going to say guess something. I guess I. I am sad that I watched it, you know, yeah. because I do feel like I lost, you know, without going into how I feel about, you know, what they're saying or whether I believe it or not. It's just I do feel like I'm never going to be able to unsee it. Yeah. Um. And and 
it, you know, I have a son and it's very traumatizing to think about all this stuff. Uh, I guess I would say, you know, it, it's very disturbing and upsetting. And, you know, in this climate, <laughs> you know, like if yeah. you, you may not want to watch something that's disturbing and upsetting. Um, or at, at the very least, I guess I would say if you watch it, I would uh, just for your own edification, read the letter that the Jackson estate sent to HBO yeah. just to give yourself the full context of what uh, what's going on behind the scenes that the film doesn't show. I think so. Yeah, I, I, I think, Kristen, I would really advocate like an active viewing experience yes. with this, you know, view this as the, the beginning of kind of digging further into this story and not the full story yes. unto itself. Um, but the other thing that I would just tell people is the, the first two hours, um, you know, the, the, the first part of this four part, uh, sorry, the first part of this uh, two part uh, uh, documentary, um, they are deeply, deeply disturbing. And that deeply. is when uh, that is when a lot of the description of the alleged abuse comes in. Um, the second part, the scope just gets a little broader in a way that I found um, a little bit more just a little bit more intriguing, for lack of a better word, and, and not that the other stuff isn't essential to what to the story this is trying to tell, but that's kind of when you get into this phase of, you know, Wade and James are talking about a time when they were kind of grown-ups, and mm -hmm. there's a really fascinating look at uh, the two court cases uh, in the early 90s and then in the early 2000s, um, and just kind of the, the surreality of the media circus around that, and the fact that, you know, Wade by that point, um, I didn't even really realized this Wade kind of became a major choreographer yeah. and, and just just a, a creative figure who was very involved um, in the pop of my youth there's a lot of footage of him choreographing NSYNC and Britney Spears and um, even I'm no expert in dance but just like his sort of artistic style of dancing just seeing archival footage of that that really brought me back to 1999 2000 yes. 2001 in a very vivid way um, and then he kind of gets trial in a way that he ultimately really regrets and it's just that's the stuff where you know it becomes a little less about the, the utter shock of what they are describing yeah and I you know I, I I do think that there is perhaps something something worth understanding about the shock of that um, but when it really gets into, in this documentary's perspective, the power of Michael Jackson and the power of the people yeah. around him and how they sort of, you know, operated, how they would go into sort of defense mode, um, that's the stuff that I find just a little more... Um, I just think that's where it gets to become a really worthwhile look at the power of yeah. celebrity and how it relates to these people specifically. And there's just, there's a great figure in the movie. Um, it's Wade's older brother yes. uh, and an Australian <laughs> man who sort of recurs throughout. And in a sense, he's, he's a really good voice because he's just a guy who's kind of like, I can't believe any of this is happening. And like, yes. you know, when he describes hearing about how his mom w was allowing, or his mom was, his, his mom was allowing his younger brother, who at the time was very young to sleep in the same bed as his grown up. He, he kind of has the reaction to anyone, which is like, how, why? Yeah, like, how what is, is that that's possible? weird. What are you doing? And, and, and yeah. And, and I think that, you know, 
as a portrait of celebrity and fame and riches and the kind of tantalizing effect that had on these two families and how that really, you know, if it didn't destroy the families, it certainly left them one way or another with just awful scars, yes. uh, you know, particularly for these boys who are now men. Um, it's just, I, 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 I don't know. It's, this documentary is kind of continuing a project that we've seen a lot recently, which is sort of re-examining and recontextualizing the pop culture of the 80s and 90s, and maybe trying to deepen our understanding of the underlying forces behind that. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I always think that's worthwhile. Um, I, I guess I, I just wish that there was more here. Um, yeah, I do just wish that it had not taken whatever shortcuts or however you want to put it sort of it turns a blind eye to things that you know are facts and and you know like these lawsuits you have to be able to give the full picture they obviously yeah. want to uh, want to get their stories out because they're in one way the litigation is under appeal uh, at this point, and that can't that can't be ignored. That doesn't mean they're not also just telling their story because, as alleged survivors of sexual abuse, they want to destigmatize childhood sexual abuse and give people the power to to speak up when it happens. But you know, it it makes everything else suspect when they yeah. and it's unfortunate. Um, but I do think your point is really well taken, and it makes me feel better about it as as the project and watching it, like seeing it as what would it be like if you got swept up. Uh, by you know became befriended by the most famous person in the world and yeah. what does that do to you as an ordinary family from Culver City or wherever or from you know the Simi Valley Simi Valley right and it's just it's really uh, that is fascinating and yeah. the, the way the parents both of whom both the mothers uh, because it's primarily the mothers who were with their sons during this period they both own up to the fact that they failed miserably in many ways and they own up to it. There's just a lot of sort of context that you need to know. How could it possibly have happened? Yeah. And the film does do a good job. Um, and even, you know, Kristen, the one thing that I would just say is, and again, if it sounds like I'm focusing so much on the fame and celebrity stuff, I, I like, I, I want to make it very clear, their confessions on screen, whatever you think about them, um, are truly haunting. But there's just occasional sequences in Leaving Neverland that stick out to me even more, where even if you're someone who thinks they are totally lying, and I, right. I, 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 I find that hard to believe that right. there would be someone who would feel that way but but even if you are that way there's a sequence like um, they have this archival footage of an Australian like morning show where Wade comes on he, he's a kid at this point and like the newscaster is just so fawning over him and like is it true is that the hat from Michael Jackson's smooth criminal music video right right and Wade's right. kind of like yeah and like you know his makeup his his lipstick is still, still on here on and it's just it. like yeah. and it's it's this weird just kind of like this godlike worship of celebrity that I, I don't think has gone away. I think, if anything, that's much more prevalent in culture now than it was at the time. Right. And I guess that's that's where there's something there's something you can get out of this documentary that is, you know, that makes me feel like there is a depth to this that is perhaps lacking in just some of the pure reporting of of this story. Yeah, um, and that's really, really what my concern is about it is that, you know, 
I, I'm not here to judge what the men say. That's not for us to, to judge. It's really how it's presented. If you're going to insist that this is a documentary, then you need, you know, there's very, some very simple standard protocol that you need to follow, including just even if it's just putting up a card that says the Jackson estate says X, Y, and Z, yeah. here are their denials. Like I watch Scientology, The Aftermath, and honestly, which is Leah Remini's documentary series on A&E about uh, Scientology as a cult and the things that it does to, uh, to you know, sort of ruin lives and terrorize people, and all of which Scientology denies, and every episode, there's at least like five minutes of screen time taken up with their denials. Yeah. And you know what? It doesn't detract from my ability to sort of uh, enjoy the show for what it is. I recognize that, you know, the stories that are being told are no less powerful because I'm seeing these, you know, lengthy denials from Scientology. It's really, you know, I recognize that this is the responsible thing to do. Yeah. Uh, surviving R. Kelly, same thing. You know, R. Kelly is alive. And so, you know, they have to, they are legally obligated to include his denials. Um, Michael Jackson is not, and so they aren't. And that just because they're not legally obligated, I would say they're sort of professionally and morally obligated, and it's a shame that they didn't do it. Leaving Neverland debuts on March 3rd. The second part is on March 4th. Very intrigued to hear what people think about it, uh, and hopefully there are sober and thoughtful responses to this documentary, uh, because it's fair to say that one way or the other there will also be very outraged responses, and I, I'd be very intrigued to hear how how people think about it. Kristen, can we talk about something a lot dumber now? Yes, please. Okay. Um, I mean, this is part of an ongoing segment we've somehow developed called Oi with the Universes already. <laughs> Uh, where, where we discuss universes in television. More specifically, this is part of our segment, TV Talk, where we talk about TV. Yeah, we do. And Kristen, let's talk about something that I know you just love, Marvel. Specifically, the Marvel Netflix universe, uh, the series of series of superhero shows that began in 2015 with Daredevil, and then there was Jessica Jones, and Luke Cage, and Iron Fist, and the Defenders, and the Punisher. It is all coming to an end. Last week, uh, Netflix officially canceled The Punisher and Jessica Jones, which still has a third season on the way. Um, this ends a really fascinating less than six year experiment, which all began in late 2013 when Netflix, which at that time was coming off of uh, the first seasons of House of Cards and Orange is the New Black, and Marvel TV, uh, the TV offshoot of uh, Marvel, which at that time uh, essentially had mainly just produced Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm -hmm. uh, they announced a partnership. It was a fascinating announcement. It was not really something that I remember ever seeing before in my career where they said we have now greenlit five TV shows, four interlocked TV shows, mm -hmm. and then one TV show, The Defenders, that will unify all of these. Daredevil debuted in 2015. The rest have all kind of come along. Um, Kristen, I almost don't want to talk about the shows so much yeah. because um, despite some occasional good performances and really thoughtful instincts. I thought they were all really boring. Um, but I, I'm just really interested in the Marvel Netflix, and maybe more to the point, the Disney Netflix dynamic yes. here. There's been a lot of talk about the fact that, you know, part of the reason why Netflix has canceled these shows could be tied in with the fact that Marvel is owned by Disney, and Disney is launching its own streaming service, so why would you have something that's almost an advertisement for your opponent? Um, there's a counter-argument that, you know, 
in whatever weird metrics we have to draw on with Netflix, i.e. none at all, <laughs> were there kind of rating drop, were there kind of viewership drops that happened with the shows as they went into seasons two and, and in some cases three? Um, I'm just trying to figure out, Kristen, who won this thing? Who, who walks it's away from this? Question. Who walks away from this feeling like we got one over the other guy? And you, you know television and TV business better than almost anyone I know. I'm very confused by all of this. And I, I wonder, as you kind of look at this this kind of half decade thing that wound up being this weird deal between two of the biggest companies in showbiz history like who's who's walking away from this feeling like they kind of won this one you know it's interesting because uh it's hard to say i guess i would say you know if you're just looking at it from a dollars and cents standpoint Probably Marvel won because they, you know, Netflix paid them a hefty license fee for each of these characters and, you know, to to make shows based on each of these characters. And so, yeah, they raked in the money. But from a like long term hearts and minds of the fans standpoint, I do wonder if Netflix won because partly, you know, I think, you know, obviously part of why these shows are being canceled is because uh the streaming wars disney has disney plus and they theoretically could revive these shows for those that platform i, d I don't think they will but you know they're not going to start feeding their intellectual property to a competitor uh like netflix when they want to launch their own streaming service disney plus but you know now what has happened is they gave fans these shows of varying you know degrees of quality i enjoyed jessica jones never really got into the others uh and then they essentially i think everybody who's even remotely interested in this kind of sees well okay they took their toys and went home because you know they <laughs> they don't want it's not like you know yes it was netflix that that decided to cancel them but i think you know they were always going to remove uh in some way however they had to do it they were going to remove these properties from netflix and so netflix you're kind of saying sorry you you're kind of saying for them them, the, the long-term chess match of this was th they knew something like this would probably happen that they would yes. sort of have these shows there and then you know in the kind of grander scale of the the overall environmental change in, in, in the in the yes. business they knew we will have our own thing someday exactly yeah. and now what do they what do they have they have meanwhile netflix lost these five shows or however many there were but they still have plenty of other things to keep people around things that they created things that they own um and now uh, Disney is left in the position of saying like, okay, well, you know, we've got a lot of great stuff too, but it's another thing you're going to have to pay for, uh, which is for a fan who's probably already paying for Netflix and Hulu, uh, you know, and is now coming to, you know, terms with the fact that he or she may have to pay for DC Universe and Disney Plus and maybe <laughs> Star Wars will have their own thing. Who knows? Like, they're mad. They're probably mad. So I wonder in the overall sort of PR war, if... Marvel has has sort of hurt themselves by by you know irritating fans who are now not only more irritated that these shows are gone the, although is really anybody sad that Iron Fist is gone I don't think so but you know <laughs> Iron Fist isn't sad that Iron Fist is I know. gone <laughs> but like you know people like Luke Cage they like the Punisher and you know Eminem's very upset about the Punisher being canceled um he tweeted about it 
And and so they're going to direct that anger sort of at Marvel for then saying, okay, well, if I want any of your content now, I have to pony up more money. Yeah, that's one thing that I think about a lot is, you know, Netflix uh, on some deep level, I think their only mission across this decade has been like a getting more subscribers and as an ancillary thing to that B, like convincing those subscribers to only pay for us, like cancel your cable, don't pay for Hulu only pay for us. And yes. I think that in that sense, it is a success. Um, Kristen, before I asked you this question, I asked the worst person this question, Twitter. Um, <laughs> up, on, uh, up on Twitter, I did a poll about who won the Marvel Netflix deal. Now, after 518 votes, the votes were literally 50-50. It's so crazy. Which, 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 which on one hand, I, I, I'm kind of like, that's fascinating. Um, I, I do want to say that uh, Twitter user Isaac Guzman, uh, he, he, he told me his theory is that everyone was just voting to maintain the split decision which, <laughs> just to taunt you which which if that's true a like i mean if someone's hacking this process then i feel very honored but yes. also somebody really needs to find better things to do than focus on my twitter polls um but also uh another uh, person on twitter mike chauvet hopefully i pronounced that correctly uh said quote netflix won. they were the first pop culture name properties netflix got as originals walter marvel slash disney they're largely footnotes and i, I find that to be a pretty compelling argument because mm -hmm. in late 2013, Netflix now, I think everyone recognizes this is a potential, not say industry killer, but this is a potential like industry crusher on the scale of maybe what Microsoft was doing to other tech companies yeah. in the 90s. And I don't think that was a feeling anyone but the most savvy prognosticator had in late 2013. Again, we had the success of House of Cards. We had the success of Orange is the New Black. Um, and then you kind of had this announcement. To me, that kind of seems to be one of the first true mega deals that Netflix ever did. And I would almost say that, you know, that is kind of the beginning of the process that leads to them hiring away Ryan Murphy from FX, hiring away Shonda Rhimes from ABC. You know, it's it's the kind of it's the quality of mutual legitimification. That's not a word. You know what I'm saying? I know what you mean. They both it, it, it feels as if Netflix got legitimized by this. And so yes. even if there is even if there is fan outrage at them and even if there are some Marvel partisans who are kind of like Netflix, how could you do this? You know, I, I don't think those people are canceling their Netflix subscription. Absolutely not. But you know what they might be doing is saying, do I really want to spend 10.99 a month or whatever it's going to be for Disney Plus or DC totally. Universe? So Netflix has the advantage of time like it is a habit now that we pay for Netflix, that we pay for Hulu. You know, these new Johnny Come Lately streaming services are it's going to be harder for them to to become a daily habit, you know, yeah. and and so I do think in that way it gives the edge to Netflix, um, you know, because, again, also Netflix does have plenty of their own IP that that they can use. I mean, this is going to happen with other things like, you know, people flipped out when Friends was leaving Netflix, like they lost their minds. And it ended up uh, not, I think it ended up getting extended. But eventually Warner Brothers is going to have their own streaming service. Yep. And they're not going to want Friends to be on Netflix. And so we are, you know, Netflix will lose major pieces of property uh, other people's intellectual property as these streaming wars heat up. I, I, that doesn't, but they still, you know, people then just go stream you or, you know, yeah. one of the 50 zillion movies or, uh, you know, making a murderer or any of the other thousands of other things they can watch on Netflix, uh, that no one can take away from Netflix. And so 
I do think, I wonder if eventually all these streaming services will collapse and it'll go back to being, you know, sort of the big three, Hulu and uh, and Netflix and what is the other third? What would Amazon. Be? Amazon, thank you, and Amazon. So, uh, but in, in the meantime, there's going to be a lot of, agita over things getting taken away i'm going to be very intrigued because uh, you know you, you sort of mentioned uh, that yeah you were a fan of jessica jones i'm going to be very intrigued to sort of see that uh, when it debuts sometime later this year um because it's it's interesting to me that that is going to that that's going to be the final statement um of this universe um you know uh, marvel tv head jeff Loeb, he sort of had sent a letter to fans slash to everyone and that letter seemed to imply that there might be a continuation for these characters it's unclear what that would mean right now um I, i'm not a legal expert Th there is some aspect of this deal that basically means that these shows can't like immediately reappear on disney plus i i think there's a there's a couple of year time span um so you know we, we'll see i i suspect that if people online are as adamant about their love of these shows as they seem to be there may be some continuation further down the pike um sorry to cut you off do you think uh fans would want that or do you feel like the properties almost have like a little bit of a stink on them now not for any fault of their own although iron fist you are responsible for your own misery but just for the fact that you know there's all this sort of ill will Kristen, it's such a good question. I I don't know what the mind of the modern fan is anymore. But one thing I would say is it seems to me that at least the the loudest consortium of people online always want more now. Um, you know, I, I kind of grew up in a time where to be a fan of something specifically kind of geeky, but maybe this is true of a lot of things, it was to kind of know that like, you know, this show existed back then and, and I like it, I'm watching it in reruns and I will kind of, you know, I'll be a connoisseur of that, but, but, but this is sort of it, you know, there's not gonna be anything more of it. And now, and this all goes back to Netflix to a certain extent, you know, when you have stuff like Arrested Development and so many other things being revived this decade, I think it has shifted people's perspective where I mean, I, I think if you love these shows if you love daredevil then i mean like you know watch gotham and like better things is what i would say but, but, but also but, but also i mean listen you know, you know i shouldn't say that everyone can love the things they love but it just seems as if for those people um i i i i don't think any of them like want this to be the end and i you know this is sort of where what you were saying about intellectual property comes into play you know disney at any point now it has well in marvel's case you know a hundred <laughs> more than a hundred you know characters they can pull from but at any point if they can sort of do something new with that i suspect they will yeah. but i guess that just makes it more interesting for me um you know jessica jones season two i had some issues with mm -hmm. but i guess i'm just a lot more interested in watching this third season now, kind of knowing that this is the end for these shows. Um, right, you know, no, I agree. They, they, they certainly claimed some corner of pop culture while they were on. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, it is interesting, and I think it could be instructive for, uh, you know, future deals uh, in terms of, especially, I think we could go back to seeing this type of deal once all the streaming wars are sorted out, because I really do believe that uh, eventually people will realize that 
it doesn't pay to have your own streaming service. Not every single entity out there needs to have their own streaming service, you know, Uh, on on top of everything else they do. So I do think eventually when everyone realizes that, um, we we could go back to seeing these types of joint deals where, you know, characters are a universe. Oh, the universe is already... um, Our, our, you know, partner with an, a streaming platform to create this type of series or several series yeah. and it won't, it, you know, so maybe someday this will all happen and we can all get along. But uh, for now, I do, I do think that Netflix uh, takes the win, even though your vote was literally tied. 50 Kristen, I have one, I have one final dumb question about yes. this very dumb yes. thing. Are we... Are we war correspondents from the streaming wars? Oh my god, we so are. Because <gasps> oh my gosh, uh, we this need is so like uh, we need like helicopter sounds in the background, <laughs> and uh, you know Patrick can fi- fill in some. Uh, our producer Patrick can fill in some like bombs going off because it is like we are in the streaming wars. <laughs> this is it. It's happening. It's happening. It's happening. <laughs> we need to start writing letters from the battlefield. I'd be like, dear Darren. Today, I got a two-factor th- two authentication request from Google Play. I don't know, dear, whatever. Yeah, I'll, I'll respond. Dear, I'm, I'm seeing this now as a Ken Burns documentary where I am, of course, voiced by Peter Coyote. And he's like, <laughs> dear dear Kristen, I watched the 50th hour of Umbrella Academy season one, but my eyes are falling out of their skull from boredom. Ellen Page, please call or and fire, and fire your manager. The medic gave me a piece of wood to bite on while I made it through the last hour. I don't know. <laughs> we have literally lost it. Okay. Um, <laughs> so perhaps, uh, what's what's the summary here, Darren? I think Netflix won. I think that uh, all your points about Marvel are very spot on. Uh, I do think these are both gigantic mega companies that are going nowhere, but it feels to me like Netflix did hear what they kind of did with a lot of the networks at the start of the decade, which is, you know, they, they used another company and used the cachet of that company and the mm-hmm. fandom of that company and their intellectual property, and it just sort of added to the Netflix bottom line, um, which is, you know... We'll see if the fan outrage over these series' cancellation impacts the subscribership. I'm going to guess it will not. Um, so good on you, Netflix. <laughs> not that you need my, my my praise for anything, but I, I think you did okay here. Yeah, and I think yeah, I think this scrappy little streaming network is going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> so Darren, after a break, we will have uh, my interview with Brooklyn Nine Nine star Melissa Fumero. Fans of Brooklyn Nine-Nine were devastated when Fox canceled the show last year, and then we were elated about five hours later when NBC picked it up. Our next guest is Melissa Fumero, who stars on Brooklyn Nine-Nine as Sergeant Amy Santiago, a hyper-organized, Dewey Decimal System-loving cop who is married to the Nine-Nine's goofiest but most dedicated detective, Jake Peralta. Melissa, thanks so much for calling in. I am a huge fan of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and it's a joy to speak to you. Um... My first question is very random. I just found myself wondering this yesterday. Um, your character, Amy Santiago, is she going to take Jake's last name? Or are they going to hyphenate? Is What's happening? Oh, um, I don't think she's going to take his last name. I think that she is going to uh, make the choice to remain Amy Santiago. Um, 
And I think just because she's like such a career woman yes. and has, you know, now gone up to like sergeant, um, you know, she, I think, would um, want to keep her name the same. Uh, Maybe know, privately. Maybe she changed it privately and like gets her mail as like Amy Peralta now. <laughs> I love that idea. Um, (laughs) So, you know, the transition of the show from Fox to NBC for fans has been totally seamless. The show, you know, hasn't Mm -hmm. missed a beat. What has it been like for you guys behind the scenes? Um, Pretty similar, to to be honest. Universal's always produced us, so... um, it hasn't been like a big change, you know, it's still a lot of the same faces that we've had around since season one. Um, and then some new faces at like table reads and things, but we're still at the same stages. We still have most of the same crew. Um, we lost some crew members in like the 32 hours that we were canceled because <laughs> those guys are all freelancers and they book other things really quickly. Um, but, um, yeah, it's it's been kind of the same. I think the biggest changes to us is, have been, you know, NBC allowing us to do, like, leaps and blurs, um, yeah. which has just been, like, a fun new element to add to the show. And it's nice to have, like, a fresh component. So, you know, it's a sixth season of a yes. show. Um, and, and then the social media has also, like, NBC's social media game is real strong. And so I think that they've been more um, present on set and, like, getting more behind-the-scenes footage. And I love that they released bloopers from yes. season one. And, like, I think all of that has added um, definitely to our online presence and I think just has made more fun fodder for, like, the fans. Um, so that's been exciting. Yeah. Um, but other than that, it's been the same. That's great. Uh, and there's so <laughs> much there's so much exciting news about the show this season. You know, it got picked up for additional episodes. And most recently, it was reported that Lin-Manuel Miranda, one of the guardians of the 9-9, is going to play Amy's brother in the March 7th episode. What can you tease about that episode? I am so excited. I have literally been pitching Lynn as a brother, I think since like season one, when he first (laughs) tweeted about the show and Hamilton hadn't come out yet, but I am like a huge fan of In the Heights. So I was like, oh my God, Lin-Manuel Miranda loves the show. People are like, who that? Um, (laughs) And then Hamilton came out and then everybody knew who he was. Right. Um, And we've been trying for a long time. There's been like previous possible like scenarios where he was going to come and then, you know, he's a very busy man and scheduling is very difficult. Um, So we finally found an opening this year and we were all so excited. And yeah, he plays Amy's older brother who she, uh, let's just say, is very competitive with. Mm -hmm. They have a history. Um, And I think it's going to be really fun for the fans to watch because it's the kind of episode where you go, oh, that's why Amy's the way she is. Uh, (laughs) This is what she grew up. This is the environment she grew up in. No wonder she's such a maniac. Um, So it's really fun, and it was so fun to... uh, to have Lynn on the show and play with him, even though I had strep throat. I was so sick. No! (laughs) Luckily, I hear you can't tell, but I had like 103 fever. Oh my gosh. And my throat was on fire. And I was like, I can't believe we're finally spending all this time together, Lynn, and I can barely talk to you. Oh, that's Um, rough. Yeah, but 
regardless, we had a great time and it was super fun. Did he just completely geek out on the set because he's such a fan? Yes. And it was so weird for everyone. He was like making up songs about (laughs) I'm on my favorite show. I'm inside my favorite show. And we were like, no, you don't get to geek out. Like we all get to geek out. And it was so bizarre. Um, the first time I like said the first scene we did and I like said a line as Amy, he like geeked out for a second. And I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. This is so surreal. Um, yeah, it was, it was really fun. And he sort of like did his character, um, based off of like Amy a little bit. Like he, it was so great. Like he just plays a character like such a Santiago and it's really fun. <laughs> well, an- another big development this season, you're making your directing debut with, I believe uh, an episode airing later this season called return of the King. How did that come about? Yes. Um, well, when we got the extra episodes, uh, Joe and Stephanie and I all asked if we could direct one. Um, and our, wonderfully supportive show was like, yeah, that sounds great. And we were like, oh, no, now we have to do it. Um, (laughs) I and I was lucky to go last. So I kind of got to like watch Joe and Stephanie and like, you know, pick up all the good things that they did. It was great. It was so fun. It was it's the perfect set to, um, you know, it's been something I've been thinking about wanting to try to do for a long time. And our set is so just loving and supportive and I knew that everybody had my back and it was two of the most creative weeks I've had in a long time. Um, it was great to get to spend time with, um, certain crew members that, you know, aren't on set when we're shooting that work more behind the scenes. Um, and it was the episode where Chelsea Peretti comes back. Um, so she is the return of the King. Um, and it was super fun to work with Chelsea, um, who I love and admire her talent. And, um, yeah. And I, uh, just submitted my, director cut last week and I'm pretty happy with it it's that weird feeling of like oh I kind of pulled the thing off you actually did it Uh, I actually did it uh, is there anything else you can tease about the episode um we we get to see Gina again and we get to see what she's do her her new life has sort of exploded um and it's very exciting and it's very funny and it's very Gina. Perfect. Um, Yeah. So one of the funniest Amy moments this season, um, I mean, there's so many, but one came during the February 14th episode when Jake is obsessed with the unsolved murder and Amy wakes (laughs) up to find him standing over her with a butcher knife and her gut instinct is to just clock him in the nose. And it looked like a killer punch. Did you actually hurt Andy Samberg when you punched him? I did not. I've punched Andy several times, and so I think we just have it down to a science <laughs> now. Um, where it was, it didn't take that long to like work it out. <laughs> and we we're just like, oh yeah, here it is. And yeah, like Amy's a cop. If she doesn't matter who's standing over her, if she wakes up in the middle of the night, she's gonna deck them before she realizes who they are. Um, yeah, I thought that scene was so funny and. Um, yeah, and Michael Mosley was just, like, hilarious in that scene and just kept making me laugh. He was, like, 
ad-libbing the craziest things on his exit line. Like, <laughs> think a few takes, he was like, sleep tight, don't let the bed bugs bite. Like, he was just saying <laughs> insane stuff on his exit, and it was he was killing me. It was really fun. That whole episode was really fun. Do you have any other favorite moments or episodes from this season so far? Um, let me think. I, yeah, there's some, there's some good ones coming out. I'm definitely excited about the Lynn episode. I'm excited about the episode that Stephanie directed that's um, airing, I think, next week on the 28th. It's like our Me Too episode. Um, We get to see, like, a different side of Amy that we haven't seen before. Um, We just, yeah, and, um... And I got to slide on a car a couple weeks ago, like really? run and like hop and slide on a car hood. And that was fun. That is classic uh, TV cop to be able to do that. Classic TV cop. It was, yeah, it was like my little checklist of like things I'd love to do on Brooklyn. And I was like, oh, yeah, I get to finally check the car slide box. Um <laughs> Well, that all sounds great. Um, One of the things that we uh, ask people who come on our podcast is about, uh, you know, shows they love. And I'm wondering for you, what was the first TV show you loved just ever and why? Ooh. uh, Well, if we're going super way back, my mom said I was a very hyper child. (laughs) And apparently the only show I would sit down and watch and give my mom a break was Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Nice. Um, And I think when I got older, it was, I was definitely like a Saved by the Bell kid. And then I was very, and then like a little bit later, like my teen years, I was very into Seinfeld Mm -hmm. and Friends and Saturday Night Live and reruns of Cheers. I remember like staying up late and watching old episodes of Cheers and I Love Lucy. Um, Which is funny to like think back to like my teen years of like, I'm like, I didn't really watch any dramas. I think I watched like Beverly Hills 90210 and that was it. Um, (laughs) But yeah, everything was, um, I was pretty obsessed with Seinfeld and Friends. Very classic must-see TV stuff. What's the most recent thing that you binge-watched? Oh, uh, was binging the other day, one day at a time, of course. I have so much love for that show, and I was so excited to get to guest star on it this, yes. in this new season, third season. I hope people watch it and check it out, as every year, for some odd reason, they're in danger I know. Um, of not getting renewed, which is just crazy pants to me, because it's such a great show. Um, and it's so important for like our community because yeah. it's just showing like a real Latin family, um, you know, where they're not playing into any stereotypes. Yeah, absolutely. Except the stereotypes that we Cubans like to joke about, um, <laughs> <laughs> like coffee and big staple rub and. Um, <laughs> And and then just yesterday I was catching up on Manifest because I had a day off oh. and my good buddy JR is on that show and I've gotten totally sucked into it and it's such a good show. <laughs> but other than that, I don't have like a lot of time between work and a toddler. Right. I, sadly, I used to watch so much TV and it pains me that I don't watch as much TV. Like this thing I love is kind of taken a backseat for now. For the other thing you love, which is your toddler. Uh, yeah, he's all right. 
Well, uh, it's great to talk to you, and I look forward to seeing all the episodes that you and the other cast members directed. That's great news to know that uh, we have all that to look forward to. Thanks again for basically the existence of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which makes us all so very happy. Oh, that makes me so happy to hear. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That'll do it for this week's episode of Best of Shows. If you like what you hear, give us a rating and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever podcasts are potted. If you don't like it or you just want to talk TV, tweet at us. I'm at Kristen G. Baldwin, and my partner in crime is at Darren Franich. Let us know what you think. Until next week, I should have a catchphrase, but I don't. So bye. Bye.